The reading this morning is from Romans chapter 12 and can be found on page 1139 in the Church Bibles. Romans chapter 12 and beginning at verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, encouraging let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we've seen, the, gifts, the, the gift or the baptism of the Holy Spirit begins when we start our Christian life in Christ. And it continues as we increasingly appropriate the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And the fruits of the Spirit are, appear and they ripen and they are expressions of the transformation that Christ brings in our life. Our character changes. Our personality doesn't, but our character changes. And uh, the gifts of the Spirit are given to individual believers but they are for the healthy growth of the church. Now, in the New Testament, the, author, the authors, when writing of the church, often contrast its unity with its diversity, so that we have, um, we have one, the, the, we, the church is one because one spirit lives in it. But the church is diverse because one spirit distributes a variety of gifts to all believers. So the gift of the spirit creates unity, and the gifts of the spirit to all believers create diversity in the church's ministry. And the same truth can be expressed if we look at the word grace, charis in uh, New Testament Greek, and gifts are charismata, gifts of grace. Now just as uh, if you shine a light into a prism, the light is refracted into different colours, so too 
when the light of the Spirit shines into the church, that refracts into different ministries, different gifts, different workings, different servicings. So I think the best way to kind of approach uh, this subject is to ask questions of it and use this passage that we've had read and one or two other passages to kind of find out what the New Testament teaches. So what are spiritual gifts? Now in the Corinthians passage, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 6, we have there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all them in all men. So what we have there is um, we have three different words used for um, what you might call gifts or service or workings. And that these gifts, these talent packages, if you want to use that sort of term, are derived from not just the Holy Spirit, but they are said to derive from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want to see here, this is how we see it. We know that, um, first of all, that charismata are the gifts of, the, of, the, of grace, we know that diaconiae is the word for service from which we get the word deacon and they are from the Lord and we have ergemata which is, you can see we get the word energy from that. That is the sense of working activity and derived from God the Father. So all of the Trinity are involved in giving gifts and talents to God's people and different words are used. But you shouldn't draw too much significance from the fact that they are different words. They're all saying the same thing. They're all derived from the same God. So we might define spiritual gifts as certain capacities bestowed by God's grace and power which fit people for specific and corresponding acts of service. So we might have a, a role in the life of the church and we are gifted in order to carry it out. Or we might have gifts and we then need to find a means, a uh, context for exercising them. Well, how many gifts are there? Well, there's five lists in the New Testament. There they are. And... Um, this is what we find. We find in the Corinthians there are two lists of nine and there's some overlap. So between those two lists of nine, there are 13 different gifts. In Romans 12, there are seven gifts listed, five of which have already been uh, uh, mentioned in Corinthians. Then there's Ephesians 4, where five are mentioned, two of which are new, and 1 Peter 4.10, where there are two, one of which is new. So... Assuming we're able to make a correspondence between words in one list and another, which isn't always that clear, there are at least 18 mentioned in the New Testament. They're clearly not exhaustive, because there are some pretty obvious things which are gifting, which are omitted. For example, music or songwriting. That is surely a gift, and if you're writing Christian songs and Christian music, they are spiritual gifts. So the lists are not meant to be exhaustive. There are far more than they're listing. 
There's, interestingly, there's not one gift that is listed in every one of those five lists. There are 13 gifts mentioned only once. So one would conclude that it's a little bit haphazard the way in which they are listed. Now, what's the relationship between spiritual gifts and what you might call natural talents? Well, again, some people will veer towards the idea that um, they're all supernaturally endowed. You only get them when you're converted and you only get them, as it were, by God's uh, grace, which is true. Um, on the other hand, they may well say, well, they're just a continuation of uh, your human talent package. Well, they are extremes. I think there is difference, but there's also continuity. There must be some difference since God as creator has given creative gifts to people who aren't Christians at all. For example, people are given artistic talent by virtue of the fact that our God is an artistic God. You can work that out just by looking at the beauty of creation or of space. But God is also a God of new creation and he bestows spiritual gifts only on redeemed people. So there is some difference. But that mustn't be overplayed because there clearly is a link. There is a continuity because we have the same God. The God who is the creator is the God of the new creation. And we see that in different individuals in scripture. So Jeremiah the prophet in the Old Testament and Saul in the New Testament, who became Paul, are both said to have been chosen for their particular life's ministry and from the time of their conception. We might say that they had a genetic endowment before their call, which came into life only after it. And you can see that in others. I mean, somebody like the prophet Isaiah, he is clearly very well educated. He is a sort of senior civil servant type. He, that gained him easy access to uh, the kings of, uh, of Judah. You think of somebody like Hosea, who, poor bloke, he went through a really kind of rough time in, in marriage and relationships, but God used that as a means of communicating a very powerful message that he wanted all his people to hear. There were parallels between Hosea's experience and the relationship between God and his people. And what's true of biblical believers in the Old Testament and the New Testament is actually also true of us today, because God's purposes for us are eternal, 2 Timothy 1.9. This grace, this charis, was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. And Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, given to us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So there's continuity between our pre-conversion package, if you like, and our post-Christian life. But there is also a distinctive difference. What about uh, the miraculous? What about miraculous gifts, the gifts of miracles? Well, again, there is a spectrum of views and there are polarities at either end. One view, some Christians might take, or well, these professing Christians would say, well, I've never encountered anything that might be considered to be miraculous and therefore, since they don't seem to happen now, they didn't happen and the Bible's wrong about them. That is a very closed view of the universe. 
The other extreme is to somehow think that miracles ought to be sort of popping up pretty frequently. But in actual fact, miracles are quite rare in Scripture. And that gives us a clue as to their purpose. So, for example, miracles tend in Scripture to cluster around four particular times and particular groups of people. So, we have around Moses, the ten plagues of Egypt. Well, he certainly got his timing right each time, even if some of them may have been natural um, occurrences, um, because he said this will happen, and it did happen. Then there was the wandering through the wilderness, where the people of God were miraculously provided for with the food from heaven, the manna. Then we have Elijah and Elisha in the 10th century BC. They were the start of a whole prophetic movement throughout the Old Testament. And both of those men, each only once, that's recorded anyway, raised somebody from the dead. And then, of course, there's the Lord Jesus, who's referred to on 34 uh, separate occasions or incidents of doing miracles. And some of those occasions... There would have obviously been, it says, you know, multiple he miraculous healings. And then you have the apostles and two others, who are possibly apostolic delegates, who do miracles on ten occasions. And the purpose of the miracles were to authenticate the revelation of God that these prophets and apostles had been chosen by God to convey. So we have the comment at the end of Deuteronomy 34.10 about Moses, who is said to whom God knew face to face. None like Moses, there was none like Moses for all the signs and wonders he was sent to do. And you have in Acts 2.22, for example, speaking of Jesus, that he was attested by God with mighty works and wonders and signs which God did through him. And the same is said in Hebrews 2, 3 and 4. And then much the similarly, we have it mentioned of the apostles in Acts 2 and 5. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says the mark of the apostle is that their ability to do signs and wonders. And the point is, I think, clear, God enabled the apostles and the prophets to perform miracles because it was God's way of attesting that these spokesmen, these people who are speaking, did have an authentic message from God himself which all should recognize and follow. So they were saying, look, if you're not sure whether these people are speaking from me, Here's a miracle. This is my imprimatur on these guys. They are the ones you should turn to. They are the, or, the authorized spokespersons of mine. So what should be our response to the miraculous should we encounter a claim today? Well, on the one hand, it shouldn't be incredulity. Um, it can't happen. Nor should it actually be uncritical gullibility. Just because somebody says it's a miracle doesn't mean it actually is a miracle. It may well be a one... Christians might say um, that it's a providential answer to prayer, but it still leaves room for the, the agnostic to say it is an amazing coincidence. No, we don't expect miracles to be commonplace, 
because Scripture, the Old and the New Testament, Testament, have been completed. The people who wrote it, the prophets and the apostles, have died, but their work is left behind for us to read. There is nothing new in the divine plan of salvation that everybody needs to know between the period of the Spirit coming and the period when Christ returns. All we need to know for this period is already there. Otherwise, we'd be saying we need people to add to Scripture. Read the end of the book of Revelation. There's a very severe warning about that. So, um, are all spiritual gifts of the Bible given today? That's another question. Well, what about apostles and prophets, for example? Well, three times the word apostle is used in the New Testament. On one occasion, in, one, in John 13, 16, the word apostolos is used really of all Christians. It merely means he who is sent. And in that sense, all of us um, are sent into the world to share the apostolic faith and the apostolic mission. So we are all, in that minor sense, lowercase a, apostles. But it's also used of apostles of the churches in, on two occasions, 2 Corinthians 8.23, Philippians 2.25, where it means that one church is sending messengers to another church. But neither of those are the way in which Paul uses it in Ephesians 4 or 1 Corinthians 12, where apostle and prophets are the first two people in the list, and they are enumerated. First apostles, then prophets. And um, we need to think, well, these people are the apostles of Christ. They are the 12, minus Judas, plus Matthias, who are chosen, um, then there's Paul, Galatians 1.1, probably James, the brother of Jesus, Galatians 1.19, and one or two others. And they are particularly unique. They have a very kind of strict uh, qualification. They have to have been eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. And with the exception of Paul, they would have been people who had been with Jesus for that three years of his public ministry. And they were personally called and commissioned by Christ to be the eyewitnesses of all he said and taught and did. And they were told, we're told in John 14 and John 16, that their function was to, after these things had happened, after the ascension, that they would be inspired to write down the authorized account of Christ's life in the Gospels. And it's not surprising, given that criteria, that the apostles never appointed replacement apostles. So in a primary sense, that's Apostle capital A, there are no successors. There can't be, because nobody since then would have seen the risen Christ. What about prophets, though? Well, there have been plenty of people during church history who may have claimed to be prophets, and they come to a pretty sorry end at times. But whether there are prophets or not today depends on how you understand prophet and prophecy in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the prophets were clearly an organ of divine revelation. The word of the Lord is said to come to them. 
and they spoke the very word of the Lord. Now, in that sense, people who have, if you like, God's divine take on life, who he, um, in the case of some of them, but in the case of probably all of the apostles, they had the ability to do uh, miracles as a way of authenticating that message. Again, in that sense, prophet with a capital P, they don't exist today because God's self-revelation was completed in Christ and was recorded by the apostolic witness and the canon of scripture is closed. So that's why apostles and prophets are foundational to the church, Ephesians 2, 20 and 3, 5. And in that primary sense, as a vehicle of divine revelation, you know, there are no replacements. They are foundations to the building. And once you've laid the foundations and put the building on top, well, it's not impossible, but it's incredibly difficult. And they wouldn't have been able to do it to redo the foundations. Nobody, therefore, can say uh, categorically when they speak, thus saith the Lord. But is there a, a way, is there, is there, are there prophets and prophecy with a small p, lowercase? Well, there was Agabus in Acts, who's a bit of a kind of one-off. He predicted the famine that was going to take place, Acts 11 and 21. That's a case of somebody foretelling the future rather than foretelling the word of God. And it's quite possible, but we should be cautious. Then there are people who would say, well, perhaps prophecy is um, really interpreting the current political events or commenting on particular social issues. And there is an aspect to the Old Testament prophets which, which did that, but it's very difficult to isolate that aspect from their work of divine inspiration. Other people think that prophecy is the application of scripture and building up the church. And that again is partially what the prophets were doing. They had the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the law. And in that there is the covenant and the covenant that God had with the people of Israel was basically, if you do this, then I will do that. But if you do that, then I will do this. In other words, if you follow me faithfully, you'll be blessed. If you rebel against me, you'll be punished. And what the prophets were obviously doing was with that as their backdrop, they were saying, well, the people are doing this, therefore God's going to do that. Of course, they were inspired to apply that, uh, you know, infallibly correctly. And yet, all those kind of um, you know, minor senses fall far short of that very high biblical view of prophecy, where the prophet is an infallible, authenticated spokesperson from God. They are God's mouthpiece, an organ of fresh revelation. In that sense, Paul brackets apostles and prophets together as the most important charismata in the church, Ephesians 2, 3, 4, and 1 Corinthians 12. And in that sense, whatever we might say of some of these uh, subsidiary meanings and ministries, we must say that a capital P prophet and a capital A apostle no longer exist in the church. God's way today 
of teaching in today's church is not by fresh revelation, but by the exposition of his revelation completed in Christ and recorded in Scripture. But is there a way in sense, just like we are all apostles, we are all prophets. The prophet Joel, for example, expected all believers to prophesy. And what do prophets do? Well, one of the first to be described as a prophet is Anna in Luke 2 with the baby Jesus. And what did she do? It says she spoke about Jesus. So in that sense, we all have the message. We are all people who can speak about Jesus. So to whom are spiritual gifts uh, given? Well, the answer is to every believer. All of us have at least one gift. In fact, we're probably multi-talented. And that is emphasized through all those lists. Romans, everyone. Corinthians, each one. Ephesians 4, each of us. 1 Peter 4, each. And it's reinforced by Paul using the body metaphor. The idea that there is one body but many members of it all functioning slightly differently. And he talks about that in, in, in all of these, uh, these lists. And then, of course, if we are all given a gift or more, we have a responsibility to use our gifts. We should not be kind of too proud, think too highly of ourselves, because otherwise that will stop us doing a whole lot of gifts because we think they're below us. On the other hand, if we lack a bit of self-esteem and self-confidence... Don't think you haven't got something, because you have. And your contribution is a valued contribution, and you should exercise it. The source of spiritual gifts, where are they from? Well, they're a gift of God's grace. They are his unmerited favor. The charismata are a gift of God's charis. You can see the light goes into the church, and... The church is uh, the members display different gift packages. All unmerited. And the word charisma, gift, is applied not only to spiritual gifts, but also to God's salvation. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift, charisma, of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've also seen... Right, we've also seen that... Um, that they come from God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Corinthians' list starts off by saying, now concerning spiritual gifts, and yet we are then, as I've shown, given the fact that all three members of the Trinity give gifts to us. In fact, in Romans 12 and 1 Peter, God the Father is said to be the author of spiritual gifts. In Ephesians 4, the gifts are described as being dispensed by the ascended Christ. So it's not always helpful to overemphasize the distinction between each member of the Trinity. In extremists, we could end up with tritheism, with belief in three gods, where we don't. We believe there is one God expressed in three persons, and it's all very delicately kind of kept together. And they are the gifts of God's sovereignty. That Ephesians 4, the picture is of the Lord Jesus as a victorious general. 
and after his uh, successful military campaign, he is distributing the booty of that campaign to his troops as he wills, as he wishes. And in 1 Corinthians, the spirit apportions gifts, we're told, as he wills. So if you're very talented, then don't get too kind of ego inflated about it. It's just what God's given you and you have a responsibility to exercise it. Now it's tempting to think that, uh, um, oh yeah, what are God's purposes and how do we think, go about deploying them? It's tempting to think that they might be given for our own individual benefit, but that would be wrong. They are, according to 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Peter 4, for the building up of the church. All the gifts go to build up the church, the body of Christ. But as with a human body, some parts are more vital for the church's health and vitality than others, which is why they are valued more. So how do you know what your particular spiritual gifts are and how do you then deploy them? Well, first of all, you have to start with a sober assessment. You have to have what people perhaps call the helicopter view. You have to almost stand outside of yourself and try and uh, look at yourself as objectively as you can. And there, if you're honest, you'll probably discover that you are quite gifted, that you're multi-talented, in fact. So that means you've then got to do a bit of diary planning. How much time have you got? You have to consider what's a fair level of involvement given work, family, and other commitments. But realize that we are all called to play a part in our church. So there'll be a need to narrow down the fact that you've got multi-talents and limited time. How do you do that? Well, you perhaps ask yourself, what are you really passionate about doing? Not just what you can do. I mean, um, and then you consider, well, is there a need? And you balance that off by, well, are there enough people doing that, or is there room for me too? And you, of course, you don't need permission to exercise your gifts and talents when you're certainly, when you're operating on a one-to-one -one level, seizing the opportunity of a conversation to put a Christian take on things. I mean, Christians can moderate both sides of the, the referendum debate, can't we? But when it's working with others, it does require some degree of coordination. And we, your church, have loads of opportunities. Let me leave you with this question. What are your gifts and how are you putting them to use uh, to build up your church? So in summary, all believers have received the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. All believers have received at least one and probably considerably more spiritual gifts. They have been allocated by God the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, long before we were converted. And it's often the case of Christianizing a natural God-given talent. They're not primarily for our benefit or even for God's benefit, but for the church's benefit to build it up. So we all have a part to play in God's church. 
because they are gifts, none of us can be too proud about the package we have. And because they are given to all of us, those of us with a low self-esteem need to realize that, yes, God means you to do something. It is a valued part that you have. And a final word. There is no such thing in the Christian life as retirement. You might cease employment, but we never retire. Let me give you one example, because she's not here today. Because we do often have to change what we're doing over time, because our capacities and our capabilities change. So my example is Jean Woods, now 87. For all the spring cleans that I can remember, she has cleaned the loos. This year, she thinks it might be a bit beyond her, so she's going to serve the refreshments instead. Let us pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you that you dwell within us and we dwell within you. We have union with you. And we thank you that you have given us a, a unique package of gifts and we pray that we might have the ability to soberly discern and to deploy them in accordance with your will for the upbuilding of your church and through the church to reach the world so that it might turn to you. Amen. Thank you, Clive.